Good afternoon and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, an internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. My name is Linda House. I'm the president of the Cancer Support Community, and I'm standing in this week for your regular host, Kim Tebaldo, who will be back with you next week. The Wellness Community and Gilda's Club have united to become the Cancer Support Community, one of the largest providers of cancer support in the United States and around the world. Our services are offered at more than 170 locations worldwide and online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. The American writer and philosopher Albert Hubbard once said, "A A little more persistence, a little more effort, and what seemed hopeless failure may turn into glorious success. Although he lived over a century ago, his words aptly apply to the story of immunotherapy. And this is the second week in a row that we've had a show on immunotherapy, which tells you how exciting this new development is. Our guest today is Neil Canavan, and he'll tell us about his new book, A Cure Within, Scientists Unleashing the Immune System to Kill Cancer, and shed some light on the history of immunotherapy and the scientists who have persisted in order to turn what was once a scientific hypothesis into a reality. So, Neil, welcome to the show. I'm going to tell our listeners just a little bit about you, but I just want to, to, to raise the awareness of our listeners that we, we, we do have back-to-back shows on immunotherapy. Yours will have a completely different spin, but I would encourage our listeners to go back and listen to the show that we did just last week, which really sort of goes into the science of the different types of, of immunotherapy. With that, let me tell you a little bit about Neil. Neil has been a journalist for over 20 years. He spent most of his career writing about science and medicine. His articles have appeared on WebMD, Medscape, The Scientist, Drug Discovery and Development Magazine. And for the last five years, he has reported on issues related to drug development in cancer. Since 2014, Neil has held the position of scientific advisor at the Trout Group, a New York-based investor relations firm focused on healthcare biotechnology. Currently, is, he is a contributing editor to the Oncology Business Review, a good friend of, of, of the cancer support communities. And Neil recently authored a book called A Cure Within, Scientists Unleashing the Immune System to Kill Cancer. So welcome again to the show, Neil. Did I leave anything out of that very impressive history? That was, that was quite good. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. <laughs> Great. Thank you. So we're excited to hear from you, and your book is amazing. Very well done. Thank you. So tell us a little bit more about you and how you got interested in this field. Well, it actually came through my current boss, a man named Jonathan Fassberg, who is the owner and founder of the Trout Group. Uh, I had known Jonathan socially for about 15 years after I had featured him in an article I wrote about investor relations, which I had no idea what it was. And um, so he liked it, and he was on their website for quite a while. And I kept seeing him, as I said, socially at various conferences. And uh, almost four years ago now, he, I saw him at a conference. He said, so, you know, with your journalism stuff, you, you know these uh, what are called KOLs, key opinion leaders, uh, which are uh, those, those clinicians that are considered the top in their field. 
that are often asked to speak at conferences. They say, well, yeah, I, I know them. So, well, um, do you think you could get them to talk to our investors and educate them on, on science? I said, yeah, probably. He says, well, do you know anything about immunotherapy? And I lied, and I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and he brought me in. And we decided what we would do is, uh, you know, we would start bringing speakers in to, to talk to investors in a very small meetings. It would be a purely uh, scientific educational uh, format, and the scientists would present as science, and it would be whatever questions. But as I said, I didn't really know anything about it, so I scrambled. And the first thing I did is I, I went to a conference, and there was a man named Zelik Eshar, who's an older man, he's Israeli. And he's considered uh, the father of a technology called CAR T-cells, um, which were just recently approved. And he gave this wonderful talk, and I didn't understand a word of it. And I went up to him, and I said, you know, can I get your contact information? He says, oh, yes, yes, yes I will get this. And he, he takes my notebook out of my hand. And he writes his contact information. And then he goes, okay, and here's all you need to know. And he, he makes this scribble that I thought it was his signature, and he hands it to me. And he says, you should frame this. I am famous. I says, well, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> I look at the signature, and it's, it's a, a sketch of a mouse, which is the way uh-huh. he signs most things. And so I framed it. And then one of the first speakers I brought in is a man named Drew Portal, who is head of immunotherapy at Johns Hopkins. And he points to the thing, and he goes, that guy's really famous. And I said, well, do you want to do one? And he said, oh, yeah. And he did one. And then I framed it. And then a man named Tony Rebus came in, who uh, does immunotherapy at UCLA. And he saw those. He goes, those guys are really famous. And it's, well, you want to do one? He said, yeah, okay. And it, every person I brought in would look at the collection and go, oh, gosh, these guys are really famous. And pretty soon I had about 40 of them after about a year and a half. And I had them all around my desk. I was very proud of my little cartoon collection of all these sketches. And my boss comes up. He goes, do you realize these are illustrations for a book, right? And, mm. Yeah, and then from then on, I'm like, oh, wow, he wants me to write a book. I started interviewing people, and I realized, yeah, these are some extremely interesting people. And there's a story here, and um, that's, how the, that's about how it all started. Oh, interesting. So, so tell us a little bit more about the book. Well, um, the first thing that emerged is that the, the cancer immunotherapy, as you perhaps know from the previous show, it almost didn't happen because the technology was largely unproven for a very long time. I mean, the first time someone tried it, it was in the late 1800s, and mm-hmm. then that petered out eventually. And then there was a huge push in the 80s, mm-hmm. uh, spearheaded by a man named uh, Steve Rosenberg, who's at the, he's the chief of the surgery branch at the NIH. And he managed to cure some patients, not many, um, but it, he wound up on the cover of Newsweek in 1984, and this was touted as the new magic bullet that, we're, you know, we've, we've got a handle on this now, and, and the cures are coming. And it didn't happen. Uh, and there was a lot, of, a lot of things proposed, a lot of clinical trials, a lot of money spent. And it really wasn't working out at all, and the field just fell into really uh, disrepute, really. Uh, and if you were involved in it, people would just sort of look down their nose at you. I mean, one of my favorite quotes in the book, uh, Patrick Hughes at MD Anderson, he was working with cancer vaccines, 
And a colleague of his uh, said, you know, why don't you just inject dirt? Meaning if you're just trying to elucidate some sort of uh, uh, reaction by the immune system, as far as that individual was concerned, they were just injecting garbage and just to see what would happen. And what he didn't understand is that that's a vaccine adjuvant, and that's how you get vaccines to work. But they all faced tremendous odds like that. Um, and the very first drug, Ipi, or Ipilimumab, um, now called Yervoy, that after that approval, then people started paying attention. But that approval came, let's say, a few months away from uh, BMS, Bristol Myers, almost killed the program because what they were seeing, they, did, they weren't happy with. But they didn't understand the science. So the theme is throughout everyone's work, that all of them were working in a very isolated way uh, to try to prove that this would happen. And the other, what resulted of that is, this is a very close family of people. Um, I mean, I can count maybe 50 of them who are, who are on the ground floor of this. And they all know each other extremely well. And some of them are best friends, and, and no small number of them are married because they were just bonded by this work. Hmm. Interesting. So, so tell us a little bit more. Your, your book is broken up into 25 chapters, and each is written no. by a scientist. So did you have mm-hmm. 25 sketches, or did you have to go back and, 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 and fill the sketches in with others? There are actually a couple I had to fill in. Um, yeah, as, as you say, the way the book was set up is each section of the technology and each chapter of the person who contributed to uh, that technology coming to pass. Uh, some of the technologies, there's only a single chapter because um, the technology is still uh, in the discovery phase. There's no drug connected yet. But yeah, there, there's a few I did have to go um, back and, and ask for cartoons. And at least one person, I won't mention, he kind of refused because he thought the whole thing was kind of silly. <laughs> but, uh, if you get the book, there's, there's, two, there's two chapters that don't have cartoons. And one, one person was uh, too busy, and, and that was very much true, and the other person just thought it was a silly request. Oh, no. Yeah. But they contributed to the book, they just didn't contribute a cartoon. Yeah, well, this is an individual, I mean, as I say, it's Steve Rosenberg. He, he gets interviewed by the press constantly. So, mm-hmm. you know, little me writing a book, you know, he never heard of me and, and he didn't think the book would ever happen. And, you know, why should he take time out of his day to do a cartoon? Uh, yeah. So, anyway, his loss. So, do you have any personal favorites or personal components of the the book that really stand out to you, and what are those? There's a lot. I mean, uh, just on a personal basis, I'm I'm extremely fond of almost all of these people. Um, And, you know, you sit with someone for a while, and you talk about their lives and their struggles, and, you know, there's a bond there. Um, I'll I'll just pick one out because it was... was, she's, She's such a wonderful person, and she did one of the coolest cartoons. Uh, Laurence de Beau, who is at Gustave Roussy Institute in Paris. And to appreciate it, you need to know a little bit about Laurence. She's, she's, um, she's about 50. She's very attractive. She's very French. She's very fashionable. She's very passionate. Uh, she's always turned out. And whenever you see it or meeting or something, and she's just, she's just the neediest person. So I had set up an interview with her. 
And I had scheduled the whole thing. I met her at a conference, and she, she, she comes to the hallway and says, okay, 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 uh, but we only have about 15 minutes because I have to dress for dinner, and I needed at least an hour. <laughs> and, she, and, she sit, and she sits down, all right, all right, what's the question, what's the question? And I go, well, you know, tell me a little, like, where'd you grow up? Oh, well, and then she goes into the story of how she grew up in a fairly uh, run-down area outside of Paris, and that a good friend of hers' brother was murdered by a white man mm. because the, fr- the friend was Algerian. And I've been talking to this woman for 30 seconds, and this story comes out. And we just kept talking and talking, and we talked for an hour and a half. So wow. the 15 minutes, yeah, the 15 minutes she had planned on just went poof. Um, and the rest of her stories is, is just fascinating. She uh, was a very well-respected researcher, and she married someone who was even more respected than man named Guido Cromer, who is a very well-known scientist in France. So they became this power couple. And as the work progressed, Laurence needed a grant to carry on her work, and the grant was declined. And the reason it was declined is because she was now Guido's partner. And as the woman, she wasn't the one that was going to get the money. Now, Guido was in charge as far as the grant uh, institution was concerned. Hmm. So she was now seen as, as second tier, even though her science is every bit as good. And she had a tremendous reputation. So she decided... Uh, after talking with her husband, that she would have to not work with him anymore and do something entirely different. And as she would say, she she invented this new thing called microbiome work in, in cancer, hmm. uh, which is which has now become an extraordinary busy field of, of research, looking at how do your bugs affect your outcomes in cancer. Uh, and, and the short answer is they affect you quite prominently, and you need to know what kind, what your microbiome is, or the drugs might fail. And she started that whole branch. So, yeah, she's the, the whole evening just stuck out, and, and writing her chapter was just a dream. Wow, that's fascinating. And we have got to take a quick commercial break. We'll be back continuing our conversation with Neil right after this break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Cancer, it's a lonely word. Terms I don't understand 
choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer. Created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is being brought to you in part by AstraZeneca and Lilly Oncology. My name is Linda House, and I am your guest host today. With me today is Neil Canavan, who is the author of an amazing new book called A Cure Within, Scientists Unleashing the Immune System to Kill Cancer. And as we had talked, we've done a couple of shows now on immunotherapy, but this book really sort of peels back and gets into those 25 leaders who have really advanced the field of immunotherapy. And Neil, thank you for, for giving us this incredible insight into, into that work. You're very welcome. I would like to sort of just pick your mind a little bit more around your process. Um, just walk us through a little bit around the research and interviewing and what that was like for you as you were writing this book with really some you know, people that you've you know, established relationships with and, and become friends with. Yeah, I knew up front, I guess, you know, carry over in my student days that if you want to impress the teacher, use it up front. So uh, I can't tell you how many conferences I've been to where immunotherapy was being discussed. I mean, I'll, bar- I'll ballpark and say like 30 in the last three years. And, uh, you know, I would park myself right in front of the podium in the room that might have 2,000 people in it. And Jed Walchuk would be there presenting, or Jim Allison, all the people in my book, and and just sit there and have them teach me. And um, you know, over the course of time, they would look down on the front row, and, and I was always there. And if I wasn't there, I wasn't at the meeting at all. They knew that. And you know, if you ever want to get to know a scientist, all you have to do is walk up to them and say, you know, I, I don't really understand this work, but I want to. Could could you, you know, walk me through it? And all of them are teachers, and all of them have tremendous egos, and all of them want you to understand what they're doing. And you just tell them at whatever level that you need the explanation to go, and, and they'll start talking to you. Uh, they, you know, like I said, they, they all want to share. So, yeah, the very first step was hand in tandem, which, you know, trying to educate myself and then trying to, to earn a rapport with these people. And, you know, this wasn't just here and there. This was all over the world I was following these people. 
Um, and, and I also allow them in certain cases to uh, lead me to the next step. Like there's a gentleman in the book, uh, Shimon Sakaguchi, who is Japanese. He doesn't speak in the United States very often. I only saw him once, and that was the time I interviewed him. And he was only in the United States because he was getting an award. Mm. But uh, when I was asking other scientists, okay, I want to talk about T regulatory cells. Who do I need to talk to? And everyone said, Shimon, you have to talk to him. He's the guy. I'm like, well, I have no idea how that's going to happen. And then luckily, about a year later, I see that he's, he's being given this award. So I, I flew to Chicago, I think it was, and uh, interviewed him there. Very, very sweet man. And a lot of it evolved from that. It's like, okay, Jed, who should I talk to next? Well, you need to talk to Axel, okay? And, you know, okay, Axel, who next? And then another name would come out. Um, one thing that scientists, some scientists may object to, um, as far as who I included in the book and who didn't, uh, was the fact that I had to be able to, be, to meet this person. All the interviews were face-to-face. And I had to be able to sit with them, to learn directly from them. And the way that came about is if, if I would just follow these conferences, and whoever the conference thought was the expert, that's who the speaker was. Um, I can think of one expert that should have been in the book, a man named Lighting Chen, who's at Yale, who worked on uh, the PD-1 uh, pathway. And he made very significant contributions, but he never speaks. So, yeah, so there was really no chance to interact with them. And I, you know, I acknowledged anyone that asked. I said, yeah, that's, I wish I could have included him, but it just doesn't come about. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the process. The person in the book is almost always the, the ultimate expert. Mm-hmm. But for one or two of them, you may think, well, you could have got so-and-so. Well, so-and-so is not out there. So um, mm-hmm. I had to choose, and I couldn't wait forever to write the book. I mean, I was under a, what I, a time crunch because um, one of these people is going to win the Nobel Prize. And mm-hmm. uh, it, was, it was odds on it was going to happen this year. Uh, Jim Allison, Chapter 1, was given about a 30% chance of winning. Um, and now everybody thinks that since they skipped this year, it's going to be next year. Um, the technology is moving too fast. The discoveries are too profound. Uh, you know, it's on the New York Times uh, front page like once a month. Um, as you know, you, you did a show in technology. The CAR T cells, are, this is absolutely space age stuff. Mm-hmm. And the results there, the real results they are seeing are absolutely without precedent, um, especially in pediatrics, where children who inevitably were going to die, um, the cure rate is now, I, I hesitate to say, something like 60% in these children. So I was under time crunch to finish it by the Nobel Prize, and uh, that again sort of dictated the choices I made. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, you've spent you know time with these researchers. Can you give us a sense of what a typical day is like in their labs? Did they share some of that with you? Um, only so much of. I mean, I was in the lab for a while, and so I know how late it can go. Uh, most of these people work 12, 12 to 14 hour days. Uh, very often they work weekends. Very often they work holidays. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, I can give you one example. Uh, Bob Shriver, 
who's at uh, University of Washington, St. Louis, and he, he described to me this one thing, which is something I've actually experienced myself, which is uh, he had this a device called a fraction collector. And he, what he was trying to do was capture a protein that he was trying to purify. And it's this really big column, and it's dripping very slowly in these very tiny drops at the end of the column. And you have to catch all the drops in a separate little vial because then you have to analyze them for the thing you're looking for. Well, back in the day, um, when I was doing it and when Bob was doing it, these things were not very reliable. And, and you had to do this in a cold room, uh, you know, a walk-in refrigerator. So rather than set the thing up, it was automated. You could set it up and walk away and, and come back a day later. But if it malfunctioned, you lost months of work. So we right. would sit. I would sit. And Bob would tell this story of I'm sitting in the refrigerator all night long, just waiting for this damn thing to come off the column. And you know, your fingers are numb, and you're just cursing the whole time, and it's Saturday night, and uh, you know all your friends are out doing something that you're not. Um, yeah, if you're not... If you, <clears throat> You're not, your life is going to be in the lab. Uh, obviously, you can have families and friends, but you're going to spend the vast majority of your life in that lab. Mm-hmm. And most of, them would, most of them would happen no other way. Mm-hmm. So tell us about your family. You know, here at the Cancer Support Community, we say that, you know, everyone is touched by cancer in some way. I mean, we realize that that's a reality. And you have dedicated this book to your family members, including your parents. Um, kind of walk yeah. us through, walk us through that journey and how did that really influence what you were doing? Well, all right. Um, my father got Hodgkin's disease when I was about three, I think, which would have made my brother one and my other brother six. Mm. And, um, we were on Long Island at the time, or the family was on Long Island, and at the time, Hodgkin's disease was pretty much fatal. But my mother had read an article in the New York Times about a wonder drug called Zelban, which was being developed at Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York. And my mother, was a very strong-willed uh, woman, uh, contacted everybody and got him on a clinical trial. And uh, it turned out to be the registration trial for the drug, because the drug worked just fabulously. And, and he was cured. He was cured. So, okay, you know, dodge that bullet. And then when I was about nine, he got non-small cell lung cancer from oh, 30 years of smoking Lucky Strike cigarettes. So at the age of nine, I knew every nurse and every doctor on the uh, isolation unit at a hospital called BCMC in Albuquerque, where I grew up. Mm-hmm. And um, really, the only memories I have of my father are in the hospital. Mm-hmm. And the only thing he ever had a chance to teach me was chess. And I learned that in the solarium of the BCMC hospital. Wow. Uh, so I've, I've lived with cancer pretty much always. Um, so that... Uh, and then uh, both my brothers got cancer. Um, one, he was in his early 30s. The other one was in his mid-40s. Uh, both the exact same kind of cancer uh, called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, my older brother, he 
he responded immediately to chemotherapy, and he's fine, he's alive and well. My older brother, uh, they caught it very late. His chemotherapy failed immediately. He then went to MD Anderson uh, and had a stem cell transplant, which failed immediately. Uh, we then had to go up in the open market for what's called an aloe transplant, where the donor is someone not related to you. And in order to do that at MD Anderson, you have to have a caretaker on site during the whole procedure, and it takes four months. And that had to be me, because I was a freelancer, and then my other brother had a family. I spent four months at MD Anderson, and, and that was a horror show. Um, that was a horror show. The things you witness at that center, because that's all they do there is cancer, and people come from mm-hmm. all over the world. And almost by definition, if you came from somewhere else to go to MD Anderson, you're dying. Um, so, well, <laughs> needless to say, I've got a lot of pictures in my head. And then I, you know, and then to turn it into a profession on top of that, which I guess is a little perverse, but um, that's all I do. I go to cancer meetings. I write about cancer. I think about it. Um, well, I like to think maybe it's your way of giving back and helping those who haven't had the kind of exposure and need some of that direction. Thank you. Thank you. We are going to have to take another quick commercial break, and we have more coming right after this. This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the Azi Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Insight Corporation, NovoCure, and Taiho Oncology. My name is Linda House, and I am your guest host today. Kim Tebeldo will be back with you next week. Our guest today is a journalist and author, Neil Canavan. We've been talking about his new book, which is amazing, A Cure Within, Scientists Unleashing the Immune System to Kill Cancer. And it really does give you the flavor of the high science and then also the human behind the high science. So, Neil, I just wanted to touch on one of the chapters that really, you know, touched me, which was Dr., and you'll say his name better than I will, Hasuku Hanjo. Dr. And Hanjo, he speak, yeah. yeah. He speaks a lot about, you know, what he thinks are the necessary skills to be a successful researcher. And in a way, it demonstrates really his passion for his career. And according to him, curiosity, courage, and patience are required to be a good researcher, in your work, what other skills or personality traits do you think make a successful researcher? Um, you can't be a loner. Um, not not in the biological sciences. Uh, you you can't just. I mean, this idea that a lot of people have that you know the mad scientist in the basement with the wild hair and he comes up with some eureka moment. It's nothing like that. Um, you have to collaborate with many people over many years and very closely um, to, you know, add your grain of sand to the to the, the, the knowledge beach, if you will. Um, and that, I can think of at least one researcher in the book who has had a very difficult career because he's had to do it alone, um, and that's part due to his personality and, and, and a part due to the circumstances of his, his career. Um, to continue with that thought, his, his, one of the reasons he had such a tough time is his mentor, straight out of his Ph.D., died. And your Ph.D. mentor is critically important to helping you to the next step and to, you know, you feed off his network and that individual protects you as you're trying to find your way in science. Um, so he lost his mentor and never really could settle in with another one. And th- that's true for myself as well as one of the reasons I left science is, uh, in fact, the reason I went into writing. I had a mentor at, um, at Rutgers and he left suddenly in the middle of my PhD and there was no way I could continue. And I, I, I quit. I had to find, and I eventually, well, not eventually, very quickly found medical writing. But um, you have to identify these key people very early on in life. I always feel the other thing that stands out is all of these people 
knew what they wanted to do at a very early age. You know, if not as a child, then, then by high school, they were all set on a path. And almost all of them, I can think of, had a mentor that early who said, yeah, okay, I believe in you. Let's, you know, let's, let's work together. Let's make this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the one thing that stood out the most. You have to have others, and you have to have supporters. You have to have a network. You cannot do it alone. Well, and so speaking of support, and we, we hear this a lot from people, you know, he also speaks about the struggles of finding investors and the resources that are required to fund drug development. So can you, you know, speak to that, speak, you know, to the, the challenges in that process? Yeah, um, I think the chapter that probably speaks most to that is with Suzanne Tapalian, who's at uh, Johns Hopkins. Suzanne was a surgeon by training, and then she went into this work. And she's, she's top of her field, absolutely top of her field. She presents all the time over the world. She just got an award just last year, a very prestigious award. But when I interviewed her, um, you know, I, I asked, you know, how are you doing today? Well, I have to get this grant. I said, well, you know, and it's, it's not for a whole lot of money. I'm like, well, why is this person who is so prominent having to write grants? And they're all like that, all of them. And they spend 30 to 40% of their time writing grants. They're not on the lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she was... She was quite realistic about it with me and quite forward as far as, you know, Neil, we can't do this without industry funding, especially the immunotherapy. These drugs, working on these drugs is whoppingly expensive. And you have to draw on resources from wherever you can. And the only people who have those sort of pockets is Wall Street and Big Pharma. Mm -hmm. Um, So... You know, everybody, pharma has such a bad rep these days, and some of that is well-deserved. But uh, they are working hand-in-hand with these small biotech companies and the biotech companies with the clinicians to try to get the money going so you can set up these trials. Um, You know, the the number that's tossed around, I think it's fairly realistic, is to bring a drug to market from the first light bulb moment to your medicine cabinet is about a billion dollars. And something like 80% of that is going to crash and burn on the way. And if you can't afford to lose that kind of money, you can't be in this business. Um, and it is a business. It, ha- it is. Um, which is why, you know, the publisher perish. You hear this from, from people. They have to publish their results in whatever journal. And that's all geared towards getting attention for the lab and for the investigator, which they can then put in the grant. And people go, oh, yeah, you had that paper in New England Journal. Okay, let's give you some money to keep this work going. Um, You know, the pressures on them to find funding is is really extraordinary. Yes, and so we hope that there's a a venture capitalist or two listening to this show who will think about where they they place their investments in the future and help, help these folks out. You know, one of the... um, Go ahead. ahead. Well, I I would just say, I mean, not to be crass, but there's money to be made here. Uh, You know, uh, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Patrick Roulet, who um, spearheaded a drug called Blinatumumab, formed a very small company named Micromet, was in Germany. They only have the one product, but he got it across the finish line. And the next day, Amgen bought it for a billion dollars, bought the company. Uh, when it hits, it's huge. 
Uh, I think the current valuation for Juno, which is a car T company, is $2.5 billion. And that drug is not even approved yet. Um, this is very big business. I mean, right. when you're talking about curing cancer, there's a lot of money involved. Right. And, of course, a lot of benefit for patients when they do have those, those big wins. Oh, yeah. I want to ask you, you know, quickly, all of the scientists profiled in your book are living, except for Dr. Yes. Ralph Steinman, and his story yeah. is told posthumously. You know, tell us about, um, about including him in, in the book and his contributions. Well, he was the other one, you know, I referred to earlier about, you know, uh, the process of finding who to talk to. And that was the name that came up again and again said, you know, do you know about Ralph? Do you know Ralph's story? Uh, and Ralph's contribution, the discovery of dendritic cells, is central to almost all of the work. You know, the dendritic cells are the things that pick up, when you get a flu shot and you squirt that stuff in your arm, that stuff is picked up by what are called dendritic cells, and then they carry it out to your immune system, and that's how the vaccine works. And without a deep knowledge of dendritic cells and how they function, a lot of this technology would be black box. Um, and on top of that, um, apparently Dr. Steinman was an incredible person, uh, a very loving family. All of his colleagues just thought he was amazing. Um, you know, when he got sick with, with stage four pancreatic cancer, his friends were developing vaccines for him. I mean, they went to the FDA and they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to make an N of one experiment. His name is Ralph. And people from all over the world contributed to that. Uh, he was apparently a very special person. And to have left him out, not only for the technology, but for his story, mm-hmm. it just would have been unconscionable. Um, and then uh, for the listeners that don't know, he is the only person who has ever been awarded a Nobel Prize posthumously. I mean, there is a rule, hard and fast rule, that you have to, if you win a Nobel Prize, you have to be alive to come get it. And they made their decision within hours of Ralph dying. Hmm. And they, they thought he was alive when, when they awarded it. And when they made the call to the family, he had just passed. Uh. And there was this huge controversy about, well, are, are they going to take it back? What are they going to do? And the Nobel Committee got together. They made some calls and decided, no, 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 we're just, we'll go ahead. We thought he was alive at the time, and that's what counts. And um, his wife eventually went to Stockholm to receive the prize. Wow. It's the right thing to do. We are going to move to a quick commercial break again, and then we'll come back for our last segment. Please don't go away. We've got still a lot to discuss. I wish we had two hours with Dr. Neil Canavan. Um, This is Frankly Speaking About Cancer, and we'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, 
The Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community, a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the healthcare process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com slash MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at CancerSupportCommunity.org. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Cancer Support Community. You're listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Celgene Corporation, and EMD Serono. My name is Linda House. I'm your guest host today, and we've been having a really interesting conversation with Neil Canavan, who is a well-respected journalist and author who writes now about science and medicine and the scientists behind the science with his new book. And Neil, I just wanted to ask you a question around these Mm -hmm. illustrations. And, you know, the one that really stood out to me was by Dr. Elizabeth Jaffe. And she entitled it Mechanisms of Action Hero. And she draws a super T cell beating up the cancer cell. And, you know, you mentioned that, you know, some of the folks offered to draw for you. You asked some of them to to draw for you. You know, Mm -hmm. so talk to us about that particular sketch. And then, you know, why did you sort of anchor the book on the sketches? What led to that? Um, well, I mean, to begin with, um, to be fair to the other researchers, Liz kind of cheated. Um, <laughs> because what I would do, especially for the people who I had uh, coming in to giving, uh, giving talks uh, to our investors, is at the end of their talk, I would then ask, me, ask them to just do a quick cartoon, and I would sit there with them while they did it. And we'd have a little chat, and they'd knock it out. And um, so a lot of them are pretty sloppy. I mean, the one from Jim Allison is, is almost a legend, which I love. But, um, yeah, she, she, did, she, she knew, she had heard that I was going to do that, and she did uh-huh. that cartoon the night before. Oh, and she, okay. And, yeah, and she brought it in and finished, which was uh, which is kind of daring. And it's a really cool cartoon. Um, the reason for the cartoons and the reason why I thought it was such a great idea uh, when, frankly, my boss came up with it is 
I knew that I wanted to make these scientists people to whoever's going to read the book, especially the patients, and especially mm-hmm. the students who are thinking about a science career. And, you know, you can look at someone's headshot, and they're all pretty formal usually. But when you see someone's handwriting, or, and they draw a little picture for you, it's, it's, it's immediately intimate, I think. Um, and, you know, a little signature, a little date, and a little doodle. Um, I mean, one that Phil Greenberg did, which he, he's frankly a little annoyed with me because he didn't know I was going to publish it. <laughs> he just thought it was part of my collection. Phil Greenberg's a huge deadhead. And I said, well, Phil, you know, could you do, like, some little symbol, some Grateful Dead symbol in your sketch? And lo and behold, he draws this sketch that's got this Grateful Dead skull in it. And it's, it's amazing. It's really funny. Uh, and anyone who knows Phil laughs when they see it. Uh, and, you know, a lot of people are like that. They're very personal. Some of them are just very straightforward. But they all, I don't know, they all touch me in some way anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the whole point of writing about these people. I, I want them to be people. I want them to come to life for the reader. And so, so talk about some of the key takeaways for, for your readers. We obviously want them to go read the book, but what are, what are some of the, the key takeaways that you want them to walk away with? Um, the main takeaway is immunotherapy is not a one-off. Immunotherapy, is, the results they are seeing have never been seen before. Uh, there's a 20% response rate in non-small cell lung cancer stage 4. These people are invariably dead. I know that personal experience. Um, they're seeing cures now. Or if they're not a cure, instead of dying in a, within a year, you might get five years. Uh, this has never been seen before. Uh, and the same thing in melanoma. A metastatic melanoma invariably failed. Now you're getting about a 20% cure rate. With 20 to 50, depending on which drug and what trial you're looking at. Never been seen before. Um, and this is just the tip of, of what's happening because these aren't just drugs. They're, well, they're not poisons. They're not chemotherapy. These drugs treat the immune system. And as such, it's sort of the sky's the limit of what you can do with it. They're still figuring out how the immune system works, actually. And they know mechanistically how all these drugs work. And if you just keep building on that, the immune system is extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily versatile. And we're working hand-in-hand to understand it and tweak it and help it and support it. That's, that's you know, the huge aspect of the book. But the, the flip side to it, and I only allude to this in one or two chapters, one in particular by Jeff Bluestone, if you know all the bells and whistles and switches of the immune system that will help you treat cancer, to help turn it all on, that gives you the exact same information to turn it all off. And that's how you cure type 1 diabetes and MS and all these autoimmune disorders. It's all the same stuff, all the same switches. Um, Jeff Bluestone is working on a trial right now with type 1 diabetes with the exact same information that you use to treat cancer. Um, that, that's the takeaway I want. And hopefully I've, I've written it in such a way that almost anybody can understand it. Um, you know, my, my favorite reviewer is my bartender, Courtney. She's 25. She writes poetry. She saw me working on it. She said, oh, what are you doing? Can I read some? She read it. She got it. She absolutely got it. Um, so you don't have to be afraid. This, this is not a science book. It's about people. 
Well, I think that's part of the beauty of it, you know, is that is that you you have written about this high science piece. You've made the researchers very human and you've made it um, approachable for the public. Yeah. I mean, there are even parts that are kind of funny, if I say so myself. Any particular one you want to share with us? Oh, it's it's funny within the context of, of, you have to know the person and and the the flow of the conversation, but um, these these people are really cool, some of them. I like, there's four of them that are in a band called the Checkpoints, and they're really good. I heard them last week. Uh, Jim Allison plays harmonica. Tom Gajewski's on lead guitar. Uh, Patrick Hughes on keyboards. These are all top, top-notch investigators. And you get them in concert, and man, they blow the lid off the place. Wow. They sold, they sold out the House of Blues in Chicago last year. Is that right? Um, oh, yeah, during ASCO. It was, oh, during was ASCO, right, okay. Yeah, it was a great show, great show. Yeah, so our friend Lee Schwartzberg is a part of that, too. Yeah. Yeah, that's terrific. So um, before we end the show, I want to make sure that we give you any particular last words. And I especially want to make sure that you tell our listeners how to get the book. Um, The getting the book part is easy. It's on Amazon. It's also on the um, website for Cold Spring Harbor Press. And that brings me to, I guess, a a critical point, which I try to include. Um, This is an entirely nonprofit venture. Uh, all, it, Cold Spring Harbor is an academic press, and everything they sell, their profits go towards their research at the labs there in Cold Spring. All my money is being, or my royalties are being donated to the Cancer Research Institute. Um, you know, I, I get a pretty good paycheck at my day job. I don't, I don't feel right making money off this. I want the word to get out. Uh, so, yeah, you know, feel, feel free to. You know, spend the money. Big farmers not making the money. Uh, scientists are. Um, so I'm, I'm super proud about that. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us on the show, for being so generous with donating the proceeds of your book, informing us all on the advancements, not only the advancements of immunotherapy, but the people behind the advancements and, and the people that they will serve. And just to remind our listeners, the name of your book is called A Cure Within, Scientists Unleashing the Immune System to Kill Cancer. And I do encourage everyone to give this book a read. It's been a true joy having you join us today for Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Again, I'm Linda House, your guest host. As mentioned at the beginning of this show, the Cancer Support Community provides a number of in-person, online, and over-the-phone support. For more information about our programs, visit us at www.cancersupportcommunity.org or call us at one 888 793-9355. Neil, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you so much, Linda. Until next time, be well, do well, live well. Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. Support Community.org.